By the time you finish listening to this podcast, at least two people will have been diagnosed with dementia, which can involve changes to personality, intelligence, independence, and all of the experiences and memories that make us unique. Terry Pratchett, who passed away with dementia in 2015, captured the hopelessness of his situation when he said, I'm slipping away a bit at a time, and all I can do is watch it happen. The Queensland Brain Institute is doing everything we can to research dementia from a basic science level through to examining new technologies and potential treatments. We need to find answers for those living with dementia as well as to support their family and carers. Today, we speak to Dr Gerhard Leininger, postdoctoral research fellow at the Clem Jones Centre for Ageing Dementia Research. Gerhard explains how dementia affects the brain, the different kinds of dementia, and shares an exciting research discovery. So dementia is actually a number of different medical conditions that negatively impact cognition, and they get worse over time. That's something that they all have in common. And there's a number of different types of dementia, of which uh, the most common is Alzheimer's disease, and everybody would have heard uh, of Alzheimer's disease. It accounts for uh, most of the cases of dementia, but there are other kinds of dementia, such as vascular dementia, frontal temporal dementia, uh, dementia with Lewy bodies, uh, and a number of, of other maybe rarer types of dementia. So in the Clemdron Center for Aging Dementia Research, what types uh, are you and other researchers studying? So... The main uh, two conditions that we're studying at the Clem Jones Center for Aging and Dementia Research are Alzheimer's disease um, as well as f- some types of frontotemporal dementia. So can you talk us through what happens in the brain in Alzheimer's disease? In Alzheimer's disease, what we know is that there's damage occurring in the brain of an Alzheimer's disease patient. And so when we see the brain of an Alzheimer's disease patient at autopsy, we see that it's much smaller uh, than a normal brain of, of a healthy person of the same age. And w- when we look under a microscope, we see that there's a buildup of aggregates in the brain. So these are toxins. The main two kinds in an Alzheimer's disease brain are amyloid, which are plaques that occur throughout the brain in the extracellular environment. And there's also um, a buildup of tau aggregates within neurons. And it's believed that these two components of the pathology are responsible in some way for the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease because they prevent neurons from functioning correctly. So these proteins, do we know why they build up? That's part of the area of of research that we look at at the Clem Jones Center for Aging Dementia Research. And we know that for amyloid, for example, that this is a a peptide that is produced uh, from a larger protein and there's different biochemical steps that lead to the production of a a small protein, the amyloid beta peptide, which has the ability to cluster together and form amyloid plaques, which are damaging to the brain. But the other protein, uh, tau, which builds up in the brain, we know less about why this occurs and and why aggregates form, but we believe it's related to modifications that occur in the protein after it's made, uh, and this uh, increases with age. So with Alzheimer's disease, it's a buildup of proteins, but for something like vascular dementia, the process is actually quite different. Can you talk us through what happens in vascular dementia? So vascular dementia, which is uh, believed to be the second most common form of dementia after Alzheimer's disease, about 10 to 20% of cases of dementia are due to vascular causes. What is believed to be happening is that there's not enough blood supply 
getting to the brain. And this could be due to a stroke or it could be uh, due to hardening of the arteries and the narrowing of the arteries, such as the carotid arteries. And so the brain is starved of, of nutrients and oxygen over a long period of time. And this causes some of the symptoms of dementia. But there isn't the same protein aggregation occurring as there is in, say, Alzheimer's disease. I guess something like vascular dementia begs the question as to whether cardiovascular health or uh, disease, I suppose, you know, heart disease, high blood pressure, um, diabetes and smoking, do those factors play a role in your chances of developing this sort of dementia? So it's definitely believed that cardiovascular risk factors are important in developing some forms of dementia. And if you have Alzheimer's disease, it's also possible that you could also have an element of vascular dementia or other pathologies occurring in your brain. So with age, there are a number of, of changes and things that can go wrong. So it's important to keep your, try and keep your brain healthy uh, from multiple aspects. Are there ways people can reduce their risk of getting dementia? So uh, there was a big study published recently that found that there are a number of uh, risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. It was interesting that uh, one of the main environmental risk factors that they identified was uh, middle-age hearing loss, which can lead to social isolation and reduced stimulation. So that was um, an issue that that was an environmental factor that they thought could be solved. But keeping in good health generally, uh, as people say, a healthy mind requires a healthy body. And so it's definitely true that there are environmental Uh, factors that can reduce your risk or delay the onset of the development of dementia. So as I understand it, about one third of the risk of developing dementia is attributed to these uh, modifiable risk factors, so to speak. So things like um, regularly getting a good night's sleep, uh, exercising, eating healthily, minimising the number of head injuries you get, for example. There are still about two thirds of the risk that you can't change. I guess we don't have any control over things like genes. Is that right? I think what that large study found that was was published in The Lancet was that if you could modify all of the environmental factors that we know are are known to contribute to dementia, uh, such as cardiovascular disease, social isolation, hearing loss, uh, etc., that you could reduce the number of people in the world with dementia by one third if you could remove all of these negative environmental impacts. But that still leaves a number of cases that have genetic causes or which aren't easily modifiable by environmental interventions. What type of genes are involved in dementia? When you talk about the genetics of dementia, uh, it's clear that there are rare genetic risk factors. So these cause what's called a familial or genetic form of the disease. So there are patients that have familial Alzheimer's disease and these patients typically develop the symptoms of Alzheimer's in middle age, so much earlier than a typical Alzheimer's disease patient, and this runs in families. And then there are risk factors, the APOE gene, which is a very common gene. In fact, everyone has a variant of this gene, which influences the risk that you'll, you'll have Alzheimer's, depending on which kind of allele of this gene uh, that you inherit. And for our listeners who don't know what an allele is, can you explain a little bit further? An allele is like a version um, of the gene. And in in humans, there's three types of the the APOE4 allele or or three variants of the gene, two, three, and four. And you inherit two versions, one from each parent. And so it's known that people who are unfortunate enough 
to inherit the 4-4 allele, uh, two copies, are up to seven times more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. But it's not all bad news, fortunately. Your work specifically has found a breakthrough using ultrasound to treat Alzheimer's disease in animal models. Can you tell us about that? As a a first step, we did some studies uh, in an Alzheimer's disease mouse model. So what we did is treated the animals with ultrasound, and this was combined with the injection of microbubbles, which are a contrast agent which is used in a doctor's surgery to normally to image the heart. And so what we were interested in finding out was what would the effect of opening the blood-brain barrier in mice do and could we use it to treat the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. What we were were thinking as a long-term goal was using drugs that are not very effective at getting into the brain combining this with the blood-brain barrier opening by ultrasound. But interestingly, what we found in this study was that ultrasound alone, so without injecting a drug, just the ultrasound, which allows molecules that are normally present in the blood to get access to the brain, we found that this reduced the Alzheimer's pathology, the amyloid plaques in their brains. And what we also found is that this made them better able to learn mazes, so their uh, memory and learning was improved. So is this the first time that researchers have been able to reduce or even, I guess, reverse the symptoms of Alzheimer's? There are a number of studies that uh, have shown that amyloid plaques can be reduced in animals, but these these studies involve drugs, so it was mainly antibodies. And so there are currently antibodies in clinical trials, but they have yet to prove their effectiveness in enough patients so that this can become a therapy. But the advantages of our approach is that this is a non-invasive or minimally invasive technique, which wouldn't require the administration of expensive drugs and we hope could be performed readily in a doctor's surgery, for example. Can you explain what the blood-brain barrier is, you know, what its normal function in the brain is? So the blood-brain barrier exists around all of the pillories and, and blood vessels in the brain. And it's actually a physical barrier that's made up of very tight connections or tight junctions between the endothelial cells, which line um, the walls of, of blood vessels in the brain. And so what this normally does is prevent all uh, molecules, except for very tiny um, lipophilic ones, from entering into the brain. So this makes brain diseases quite hard to treat. But the blood-brain barrier uh, is believed to be there to protect the brain against toxins, but also to maintain the homeostatic environment, which is most ideal for neuronal firing and normal brain activity. So the blood-brain barrier is a protective mechanism, so it prevents, say, bacteria and viruses from entering the brain. Is there any danger that opening the blood-brain barrier, even temporarily, can let some of these nasty things in? In our studies where we use this technique of the ultrasound and microbubbles to open the blood-brain barrier, we find a number of important things. So the first is that you can open the blood-brain barrier, and this is temporary. So after several hours, the blood-brain barrier goes back to its normal impermeable state. The second is that uh, we could do this weekly and open the blood-brain barrier again once a week and that it would, would become impermeable again as it previously did. 
Uh, a third is that we found that there was no damage to the neurons. So uh, we didn't find that the neurons changed. They didn't shrivel up and they maintained their normal firing activity when we did an electrophysiological study. And another important finding was that the size of the opening isn't large enough for bacteria and large viruses to go through. So the size of the opening still provides some protection against, uh, say, an, an infection from reaching the brain. The research found that the ultrasound alone was enough to remove or reduce the amount of amyloid plaques in the brain. Do we know why this happens? Looking at the brains after the ultrasound treatment, the most interesting finding that we had was that the amyloid, which normally exists in plaques, with a certain cell type of the brain, the microglial cells dotted around them, but these microglia not containing very much of the amyloid plaque, what we found is that in the animals that had been treated with the ultrasound, that these cells contained a lot more amyloid. In fact, there were areas of the brain where all of the amyloid uh, was contained within these microglial cells. And it's believed that this is one of the normal jobs of the cell type in the brain is to remove the buildup of aggregated proteins. But when the system becomes overwhelmed, either because there's too much production or they become less effective at clearing um, these amyloid plaques, this is when you get the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease or the Alzheimer's pathology building up. And so what we think is that this is a way to activate and improve the, the normal activity of the cell type in the brain, the microglia. So would it be fair to say that the microglia are kind of like the garbage collectors of the brain? They're kind of chomping up all of these waste products. So that's definitely one of the functions of these cells that has been identified. And there's some evidence that in Alzheimer's disease, uh, these cells become less effective at this important task. In an update to the research, uh, this original discovery was made in 2015, but earlier this year, the team in the Clendron Centre for Ageing Dementia Research, and I know that involved you, found that using ultrasound in combination with an antibody treatment was actually more effective. Tell us about that new discovery. The two points to make about our latest research is that it focused on a different animal model of Alzheimer's disease that targets the second important pathology in Alzheimer's disease, the aggregation of, of tau protein in structures that are known as uh, neurofibrillary tangles. And so what was found there in an animal uh, with the second kind of pathology was that ultrasound alone did have an effect to reduce the tau pathology, but it was made much more effective by an antibody drug, a particular kind of antibody called an SCFE that was designed in the Clemdrone Center for Aging Dementia Research to specifically target tau proteins. And that the combination, so where you applied the ultrasound for the purpose of increasing the levels of this antibody in the brain, this was the most effective at both reducing the amount of the tau protein in the brain and improving the mice's uh, normal uh, behavior. So without the ultrasound, how much, perhaps as a percentage or a proportion, of antibodies targeting Alzheimer's disease actually would make it into the brain? 
So it depends on the antibody, but it's believed to be about 0.1%. So if you administered a thousand antibody molecules, only one uh, would be able to sneak past the blood-brain barrier. But with ultrasound, we're able to increase this uh, several fold. That was Dr. Gerhard Leininger talking about dementia. If this podcast has raised any concerns about your health, please visit your local GP. For more information about dementia, go to qbi.uq.edu.au. Our next episode will discuss in more depth the exciting ultrasound treatment being developed in the labs here at QBI. That's all for today's episode. I'm Donna Liu and our podcast was produced by Jessica McGaw. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends about it, give us a review on iTunes or let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks for listening.